Question 180 of Summa Theologica Secunda Secundae, Treatise on Gratuitous Graces. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Secunda Secundae, Treatise on Gratuitous Graces, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 180 of the Contemplative Life in Eight Articles We must now consider the contemplative life, under which head there are eight points of inquiry. First, whether the contemplative life pertains to the intellect only, or also to the affections. Second, whether the moral virtues pertain to the contemplative life. Third, whether the contemplative life consists in one action or in several. Fourth, whether the consideration of any truth whatever pertains to the contemplative life. Fifth, whether the contemplative life of man in this state can arise to the vision of God. Sixth, of the movements of contemplation assigned by Dionysius, on the Divine Names 4. Seventh, of the pleasure of contemplation. Eighth, of the duration of contemplation. First article, whether the contemplative life has nothing to do with the affections and pertains wholly to the intellect. Objection 1. It would seem that the contemplative life has nothing to do with the affections and pertains wholly to the intellect. For the philosopher says in Metaphysics 2 that the end of contemplation is truth. Now truth pertains wholly to the intellect. Therefore, it would seem that the contemplative life wholly regards the intellect. Objection to. Further, Gregory says in his commentary on Job 637 that Rachel, which is interpreted vision of the principle, or rather one seeing the principle, if derived from Ra and Irtsin, signifies the contemplative life. Now the vision of a principle belongs properly to the intellect. Therefore, the contemplative life belongs properly to the intellect. Objection 3. Further, Gregory says, in his homily 14 on Ezekiel, that it belongs to the contemplative life to rest from external action. Now, the effective or appetitive power inclines to external actions. Therefore, it would seem that the contemplative life has nothing to do with the appetitive power. On the contrary, Gregory says in his homily 14 on Ezekiel that the contemplative life is to cling with our whole mind to the love of God and our neighbor and to desire nothing beside our Creator. Now desire and love pertain to the affective or appetitive power as stated above in Pars Prima Secundae, question 25, article 2, and question 26, article 2. Therefore, the contemplative life has also something to do with the affective or appetitive power. I answer that, as stated above in question 179, article 1, Theirs is said to be the contemplative, who are chiefly intent on the contemplation of truth. Now, intention is an act of the will, as stated above in the Pars Prima Secundae, question 12, article 1. Because intention is of the end which is the object of the will. Consequently, the contemplative life, as regards the essence of the action, pertains to the intellect but as regards the motive cause of the exercise of that action, 
it belongs to the will which moves all the other powers even the intellect to their actions as stated above pars prima question eighty two article four pars prima secundae question nine article one now the appetitive powers move one to observe things either with the senses or with the intellect sometimes for love of the thing seen because as it is written in matthew six twenty one where thy treasure is there is thy heart also sometimes for love of the very knowledge that one acquires by observation wherefore gregory makes the contemplative life to consist in the love of god inasmuch as through loving god we are aflame to gaze on his beauty and since everyone delights when he obtains what he loves it follows that the contemplative life terminates in delight which is seated in the effective power the result being that love also becomes more intense reply to objection one from the very fact that truth is the end of contemplation it has the aspect of an appetible good both lovable and delightful and in this respect it pertains to the appetitive power reply to objection to we are urged to the vision of the first principle namely god by the love thereof wherefore gregory says in his homily fourteen on ezekiel that the contemplative life tramples on all cares and longs to see the face of its creator reply to objection three the appetitive power moves not only the bodily members to perform external actions but also the intellect to practice the act of contemplation as stated above second article whether the moral virtues pertain to the contemplative life objection one it would seem that the moral virtues pertain to the contemplative life for gregory says in homily fourteen on ezekiel that the contemplative life is to cling to the love of god and our neighbor with the whole mind now all the moral virtues since their acts are prescribed by the precepts of the law are reducible to the love of god and of our neighbor for love is the fulfilling of the law romans thirteen ten therefore it would seem that the moral virtues belong to the contemplative life objection to further the contemplative life is chiefly directed to the contemplation of god for gregory says in his homily fourteen on ezekiel that the mind tramples on all cares and longs to gaze on the face of its creator now no one can accomplish this without cleanness of heart which is a result of moral virtue confer question eight article seven for it is written in matthew five eight blessed are the clean of heart for they shall see god and hebrews twelve fourteen follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see god therefore it would seem that the moral virtues pertain to the contemplative life objection three further gregory says in his homily fourteen on ezekiel that the contemplative life gives beauty to the soul wherefore it is signified by rachel of whom it is said in genesis twenty nine seventeen that she was of a beautiful continent now the beauty of the soul consists in the moral virtues especially temperance as ambrose says in on the duties of the clergy one forty three forty five and forty six therefore it seems that the moral virtues pertain to the contemplative life on the contrary the moral virtues are directed to external actions now gregory says in his commentary on job six and also confer article one objection three 
that it belongs to the contemplative life to rest from eternal action. Therefore, the moral virtues do not pertain to the contemplative life. I answer that, a thing may belong to the contemplative life in two ways, essentially or dispositively. The moral virtues do not belong to the contemplative life essentially, because the end of the contemplative life is the consideration of truth, and as the philosopher states in Ethics 2.4, knowledge, which pertains to the consideration of truth, has little influence on the moral virtues. Wherefore he declares in Ethics 10.8 that the moral virtues pertain to active but not to contemplative happiness. On the other hand, the moral virtues belong to the contemplative life dispositively. For the act of contemplation, wherein the contemplative life essentially consists, is hindered both by the impetuosity of the passions, which withdraw the soul's intention from intelligible to sensible things, and by outward disturbances. Now the moral virtues curb the impetuosity of the passions, and quell the disturbance of outward occupations. Hence, moral virtues belong dispositively to the contemplative life. Reply to Objection 1. As stated above, in Article 1, the contemplative life has its motive cause on the part of the affections, and in this respect the love of God and our neighbor is requisite to the contemplative life. Now motive causes do not enter into the essence of a thing, but dispose and perfect it. Wherefore, it does not follow that the moral virtues belong essentially to the contemplative life. Reply to Objection 2. Holiness, or cleanness of heart, is caused by the virtues that are concerned with the passions which hinder the purity of the reason, and peace is caused by justice, which is about operations, according to Isaiah 32.17. The work of justice shall be peace, since he who refrains from wronging others lessens the occasions of quarrels and disturbances. Hence the moral virtues dispose one to the contemplative life by causing peace and cleanness of heart. Reply to Objection 3. Beauty, as stated above, in question 145, article 2, consists in a certain clarity and due proportion. Now each of these is found radically in the reason, because both the light that makes beauty seen and the establishing of due proportion among things belong to reason. Hence, since the contemplative life consists in an act of the reason, there is beauty in it by its very nature and essence. Wherefore it is written, in Wisdom 8.2 of the Contemplation of Wisdom, I became a lover of her beauty. On the other hand, beauty is in the moral virtues by participation, in so far as they participate in the order of reason. And especially is it in temperance, which restrains the concupiscences, which especially darken the light of reason. Hence it is that the virtue of chastity most of all makes man apt for contemplation, since venereal pleasures most of all weigh the mind down to sensible objects, as Augustine says in On the Soliloquies 110. Third Article whether there are various actions pertaining to the contemplative life. Objection 1. It would seem that there are various actions pertaining to the contemplative life. For Richard of St. Victor, in his On Contemplative Graces 1, 3, and 4, distinguishes between contemplation, meditation, and cogitation. Yet all these apparently pertain to contemplation, Therefore, it would seem that there are various actions pertaining to the contemplative life. 
Objection to. Further, the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we, beholding, speculantes, the glory of the Lord with open face, are transformed into the same clarity. Translators note, the Vulgate reads, into the same image from glory to glory. Now this belongs to the contemplative life. Therefore, in addition to the three aforesaid, vision, speculatio, belongs to the contemplative life. Objection 3. Further, Bernard says in his On Consideration 5.14 that the first and greatest contemplation is admiration of the majesty. Now according to Damascene, in his On the True Faith 2.15, admiration is a kind of fear. Therefore, it would seem that several acts are requisite for the contemplative life. Objection 4. Further, prayer, reading, and meditation, according to Hugh of St. Victor, in his Allegories in the New Testament, 3.4, are said to belong to the contemplative life. Again, hearing belongs to the contemplative life, since it is stated that Mary, by whom the contemplative life is signified, sitting at the Lord's feet, heard his word. Luke 10.39. Therefore, it would seem that several acts are requisite for the contemplative life. On the contrary, life signifies here the operation on which a man is chiefly intent. Wherefore, if there are several operations of the contemplative life, there will be not one, but several contemplative lives. I answer that. We are now speaking of the contemplative life as applicable to man. Now according to Dionysius, on the divine name 7, between man and angel there is this difference, that an angel perceives the truth by simple apprehension, whereas man arrives at the perception of a simple truth by a process from several premises. Accordingly, then, the contemplative life has one act wherein it is finally completed, namely the contemplation of truth, and from this act it derives its unity. Yet it has many acts whereby it arrives at this final act. Some of these pertain to the reception of principles, from which it proceeds to the contemplation of truth. Others are concerned with deducing from the principles, the truth, the knowledge of which is sought. And the last and crowning act is the contemplation itself of the truth. Reply to Objection 1. According to Richard of St. Victor, cogitation would seem to regard the consideration of the many things from which a person intends to gather one simple truth. Hence, cogitation may comprise not only the perceptions of the senses in taking cognizance of certain effects, but also the imaginations. And again, the reason's discussion of the various signs or of anything that conduces to the truth in view. Although, according to Augustine, in On the Trinity, 14.7, cogitation may signify any actual operation of the intellect. Meditation would seem to be the process of reason from certain principles that lead to the contemplation of some truth. And, Consideration has the same meaning, according to Bernard, on consideration 2.2, although, according to the philosopher in his On the Soul 2.1, every operation of the intellect may be called consideration. But contemplation regards the simple act of gazing on the truth. Wherefore, Richard says again in On Contemplative Grace 1.4, that Contemplation is the soul's clear and free dwelling upon the object of its gaze. 
Meditation is the survey of the mind while occupied in searching for the truth, and cogitation is the mind's glance which is prone to wander. Reply to Objection 2 According to a gloss of Augustine on this passage, confer on the Trinity, 15.8, beholding, speculatio, denotes seeing in a mirror, speculo, not from a watchtower, specula. Now to see a thing in a mirror is to see a cause in its effect, wherein its likeness is reflected. Hence, beholding would seem to be reducible to meditation. Reply to Objection 3. Admiration is a kind of fear resulting from the apprehension of a thing that surpasses our faculties. Hence it results from the contemplation of the sublime truth. For it was stated above, in Article 1, that contemplation terminates in the affections. Reply to Objection 4. Man reaches the knowledge of truth in two ways. First, by means of things received from another. In this way, as regards the things he receives from God, he needs prayer, according to Wisdom 7.7. 7. I called upon God, and the Spirit of Wisdom came upon me. While as regards the things he receives from man, he needs hearing, insofar as he receives from the spoken word, and reading, insofar as he receives from the tradition of holy writ. Secondly, he needs to apply himself by his personal study, and thus he requires meditation. Fourth article. Whether the contemplative life consists in the mere contemplation of God, or also in the consideration of any truth whatever. Objection 1. It would seem that the contemplative life consists not only in the contemplation of God, but also in the consideration of any truth. For it is written in Psalm 138.14, Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knoweth right well. Now the knowledge of God's works is affected by any contemplation of the truth. Therefore, it would seem that it pertains to the contemplative life to contemplate not only the divine truth, but also any other. Objection to. Further, Bernard says in his On Consideration 5.14 that Contemplation consists in admiration, first of God's majesty, secondly of his judgments, thirdly of his benefits, fourthly of his promises. Now of these four, the first alone regards the divine truth, and the other three pertain to his effects. Therefore, the contemplative life consists not only in the contemplation of the divine truth, but also in the consideration of truth regarding the divine effects. Objection 3. Further, Richard of St. Victor, in his On Contemplative Grace, 1.6, distinguishes six species of contemplation. The first belongs to the imagination alone, and consists in thinking of corporeal things. The second is in the imagination guided by reason, and consists in considering the order and disposition of sensible objects. The third is, in the reason based on the imagination, when to wit, from the consideration of the visible, we rise to the invisible. The fourth is, in the reason and conducted by the reason, when the mind is intent on things invisible of which the imagination has no cognizance. The fifth is, above the reason, but not contrary to reason when by divine revelation we become cognizant of things that cannot be comprehended by the human reason. The sixth is above reason and contrary to reason, 
when to wit by the divine enlightening we know things that seem contrary to human reason such as the doctrine of the mystery of the trinity now only the last of these would seem to pertain to the divine truth therefore the contemplation of truth regards not only the divine truth but also that which is considered in creatures objection for further in the contemplative life the contemplation of truth is sought as being the perfection of man now any truth is a perfection of the human intellect therefore the contemplative life consists in the contemplation of any truth on the contrary gregory says in his commentary on job 637 that in contemplation we seek the principle which is god i answer that as stated above in article two a thing may belong to the contemplative life in two ways principally and secondarily or dispositively that which belongs principally to the contemplative life is the contemplation of the divine truth because this contemplation is the end of the whole human life hence augustine says in on the trinity one eight that the contemplation of god is promised us as being the goal of all our actions and the everlasting perfection of our joys this contemplation will be perfect in the life to come when we shall see god face to face wherefore it will make us perfectly happy whereas now the contemplation of the divine truth is competent to us imperfectly namely through a glass and in a dark manner first corinthians thirteen twelve hence it bestows on us a certain incohate beatitude which begins now and will be continued in the life to come wherefore the philosopher in ethics ten seven places man's ultimate happiness in the contemplation of the supreme intelligible good since however god's effects show us the way to the contemplation of god himself according to romans one twenty the invisible things of god are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made it follows that the contemplation of the divine effects also belongs to the contemplative life inasmuch as man is guided thereby to the knowledge of god hence augustine says in on the true religion twenty nine that in the study of creatures we must not exercise an empty and futile curiosity but should make them the stepping-stone to things unperishable and everlasting accordingly it is clear from what has been said in articles one two and three that four things pertain in a certain order to the contemplative life first the moral virtues secondly other acts exclusive of contemplation thirdly contemplation of the divine effects fourthly the complement of all which is the contemplation of the divine truth itself reply to objection one david sought the knowledge of god's works so that he might be led by them to god wherefore he says elsewhere in psalm 142 verses 5 and 6 i meditated upon the works of thy hands i stretched forth my hands to thee reply to objection to by considering the divine judgments man is guided to the consideration of the divine justice and by considering the divine benefits and promises man is led to the knowledge of god's mercy or goodness as by effects already manifested or yet to be vouchsafed reply to objection three these six denote the steps whereby we ascend by means of creatures to the contemplation of god for the first step consists in the mere consideration of sensible objects the second step 
consists in going forward from sensible to intelligible objects. The third step is to judge of sensible objects according to intelligible things. The fourth is the absolute consideration of the intelligible objects to which one has attained by means of sensibles. The fifth is the contemplation of those intelligible objects that are unattainable by means of sensibles, but which the reason is able to grasp. The sixth step is the consideration of such intelligible things as the reason can neither discover nor grasp, which pertain to the sublime contemplation of divine truth, wherein contemplation is ultimately perfected. Reply to Objection 4 the ultimate perfection of the human intellect is the divine truth, and other truths perfect the intellect in relation to the divine truth. Fifth article. Whether in the present state of life the contemplative life can reach to the vision of the divine essence. Objection 1. It would seem that in the present state of life the contemplative life can reach to the vision of the divine essence. For as stated in Genesis 32.30, Jacob said, I have seen God face to face, and my soul has been saved. Now the vision of God's face is the vision of the divine essence. Therefore, it would seem that in the present life one may come, by means of contemplation, to see God in his essence. Objection 2. Further, Gregory says in his commentary on Job 637 that contemplative men withdraw within themselves in order to explore spiritual things, nor do they ever carry within them the shadows of things corporeal, or if these follow them, they prudently drive them away. But being desirous of seeing the incomprehensible light they suppress all the images of their limited comprehension, and through longing to reach what is above them, they overcome that which they are. Now man is not hindered from seeing the divine essence, which is the incomprehensible light, save by the necessity of turning to corporeal phantasms. Therefore, it would seem that the contemplation of the present life can extend to the vision of the incomprehensible light in its essence. Objection 3. Further, Gregory says in his Books of Dialogues 235, All creatures are small to the soul that sees its creator. Wherefore, when the man of God, the blessed Benedict, to wit, saw a fiery globe in the tower and angels returning to heaven, without doubt he could only see such things by the light of God. Now the blessed Benedict was still in this life. Therefore, the contemplation of the present life can extend to the vision of the essence of God. On the contrary, Gregory says in his homily 14 on Ezekiel, As long as we live in this mortal flesh, no one reaches such a height of contemplation as to fix the eyes of his mind on the ray itself of incomprehensible light. I answer that, as Augustine says in The Literal Meaning of Genesis 12.27, No one seeing God lives this mortal life wherein the bodily senses have their play. And unless in some way he depart this life, whether by going altogether out of his body, or by withdrawing from his carnal senses, he is not caught up into that vision. This has been carefully discussed above, in question 175, articles 4 and 5, where we spoke of rapture, and in the first part, question 12, article 2, where we treated of the vision of God. Accordingly, we must state that one may be in this life in two ways. First, with regard to act, that is to say, by actually making use of the bodily senses, and thus contemplation in the present life 
can nowise attain to the vision of God's essence. Secondly, one may be in this life potentially and not with regard to act, that is to say, when the soul is united to the mortal body as its form, yet so as to make use neither of the bodily senses nor even of the imagination as happens in rapture. And in this way the contemplation of the present life can attain to the vision of the divine essence. Consequently, the highest degree of contemplation in the present life is that which Paul had in rapture, whereby he was in a middle state between the present life and the life to come. Reply to Objection 1. As Dionysius says in his first letter to Caius the monk, If anyone seeing God understood what he saw, he saw not God himself, but something belonging to God. And Gregory says in his homily 14 on Ezekiel, By no means is God seen now in his glory, but the soul sees something of lower degree, and is thereby refreshed, so that afterwards it may attain to the glory of vision. Accordingly, the words of Jacob, I saw God face to face, do not imply that he saw God's essence, but that he saw some shape. Confer, pars prima, question 12, article 11, first reply. Imaginary, of course, wherein God spoke to him. Or, since we know a man by his face, by the face of God he signified his knowledge of him, according to a gloss of Gregory on the same passage. Reply to Objection 2. In the present state of life, human contemplation is impossible without phantasms, because it is connatural to man to see the intelligible species in the phantasms, as the philosopher states. On the Soul 3.7. Yet intellectual knowledge does not consist in the phantasms themselves, but in our contemplating in them the purity of the intelligible truth. And this is not only in natural knowledge, but also in that which we obtain by revelation. For Dionysius says, on the heavenly hierarchy 1, that the divine glory shows us the angelic hierarchies under certain symbolic figures, and by its power we are brought back to the single ray of light, that is, to the simple knowledge of the intelligible truth. It is in this sense that we must understand the statement of Gregory that contemplatives do not carry along with them the shadows of things corporeal, since their contemplation is not fixed on them, but on the consideration of the intelligible truth. Reply to Objection 3. By these words, Gregory does not imply that the blessed Benedict, in that vision, saw God in his essence, but he wishes to show that because all creatures are small to him that sees God, it follows that all things can easily be seen through the enlightenment of the divine light. Wherefore he adds, For however little he may see of the Creator's light, all created things become petty to him. Sixth article. Whether the operation of contemplation is fittingly divided into a threefold movement, singular, straight, and oblique. Objection 1. It would seem that the operation of contemplation is unfittingly divided into a threefold movement, circular, straight and oblique referring to on the divine names for for contemplation pertains exclusively to rest according to wisdoms 816 when i go into my house i shall repose myself with her now movement is opposed to rest therefore the operations of the contemplative life should not be described as movements Objection 2. Further, the action of the contemplative life pertains to the intellect, whereby man is like the angels. 
now dionysius describes these movements as being different in the angels from what they are in the soul for he says in on the divine names for that the circular movement in the angel is according to his enlightenment by the beautiful and the good on the other hand he assigns the circular movement of the soul to several things the first of which is the withdrawal of the soul into itself from externals the second is a certain concentration of its powers whereby it is rendered free of error and of outward occupation and the third is union with those things that are above it again he describes differently their respective straight movements for he says that the straight movement of the angel is that by which he proceeds to the care of those things that are beneath him on the other hand he describes the straight movement of the soul as being twofold first it progresses towards things that are near it secondly its uplifting from external things to simple contemplation further he assigns a different oblique movement to each for he assigns the oblique movement of the angels to the fact that while providing for those who have less they remain unchanged in relation to god whereas he assigns the oblique movement of the soul to the fact that the soul is enlightened in divine knowledge by reasoning and discoursing therefore it would seem that the operations of contemplation are unfittingly assigned according to the ways mentioned above objection three further richard of st victor in his on contemplation one five mentions many other different movements in likeness to the birds of the air for some of these rise at one time to a great height at another swoop down to earth and they do so repeatedly others fly now to the right now to the left again and again others go forwards or lag behind many times others fly in a circle now more now less extended and others remain suspended almost immovably in one place therefore it would seem that there are only three movements of contemplation on the contrary stands the authority of dionysius in his on the divine names four i answer that as stated above in question one hundred and nineteen article one third reply the operation of the intellect wherein contemplation essentially consists is called a movement in so far as movement is the act of a perfect thing according to the philosopher in on the soul three one since however it is through sensible objects that we come to the knowledge of intelligible things and since sensible operations do not take place without movement the result is that even intelligible operations are described as movements and are differentiated in likeness to various movements now of bodily movements local movements are the most perfect and come first as proved in physics eight seven wherefore the foremost among intelligible operations are described by being likened to them these movements are of three kinds for there is the circular movement by which a thing moves uniformly round one point as centre another is the straight movement by which a thing goes from one point to another the third is oblique being composed as it were of both the others consequently in intelligible operations that which is simply uniform is compared to circular movement the intelligible operation by which one proceeds from one point to another is compared to the straight movement while the intelligible operation which unites something of uniformity with progress to various points is compared to the oblique movement reply to objection one external bodily movements are opposed to the quiet of contemplation which consists in rest from outward occupations 
but the movement of intellectual operations belong to the quiet of contemplation. Reply to Objection 2. Man is like the angels in intellect generically, but the intellective power is much higher in the angel than in man. Consequently, these movements must be ascribed to souls and angels in different ways, according as they are differently related to uniformity. For the angelic intellect has uniform knowledge in two respects. First, because it does not acquire intelligible truth from the variety of composite objects. Secondly, because it understands the truth of intelligible objects not discursively, but by simple intuition. On the other hand, the intellect of the soul acquires intelligible truth from sensible objects and understands it by a certain discoursing of the reason. Wherefore, Dionysius assigns the circular movement of the angels to the fact that their intuition of God is uniform and unceasing, having neither beginning nor end, even as a circular movement, having neither beginning nor end, is uniformly around the one same center. But on the part of the soul, ere it arrive at this uniformity, its twofold lack of uniformity needs to be removed. First, that which arises from the variety of external things. This is removed by the soul withdrawing from externals, and so the first thing he mentions regarding the circular movement of the soul is the soul's withdrawal into itself from external objects. Secondly, another lack of uniformity requires to be removed from the soul, and this is owing to the discoursing of reason. This is done by directing all the soul's operations to the simple contemplation of the intelligible truth, and this is indicated by his saying in the second place that the soul's intellectual powers must be uniformly concentrated. In other words, that discoursing must be laid aside and the soul's gaze fixed on the contemplation of the one simple truth. In this operation of the soul there is no error, even as there is clearly no error in the understanding of first principles, which we know by simple intuition. Afterwards, these two things being done, he mentions thirdly the uniformity which is like that of the angels, for then all things being laid aside, the soul continues in the contemplation of God alone. This he expresses by saying, Then being thus made uniform unitedly, that is, conformably, by the union of its powers, it is conducted to the good and the beautiful. The straight movement of the angel cannot apply to his proceeding from one thing to another by considering them, but only to the order of his providence, namely to the fact that the higher angel enlightens the lower angels through the angels that are intermediate. He indicates this when he says, the angel's movement takes a straight line when he proceeds to the care of things subject to him, taking in his course whatever things are direct, that is, in keeping with the dispositions of the direct order. Whereas he ascribes the straight movement in the soul to the soul's proceeding from exterior sensibles to the knowledge of intelligible objects. The oblique movement in the angels he describes as being composed of the straight and circular movements, inasmuch as their care for those beneath them is in accordance with their contemplation of God. While the oblique movement in the soul he also declares to be partly straight and partly circular, insofar as in reasoning it makes use of the light received from God. Reply to Objection 3. These varieties of movement that are taken from the distinction between above and below 
right and left, forwards and backwards, and from varying circles, are all comprised under either straight or oblique movement, because they all denote discursions of reason. For if the reason pass from the genus to the species, or from the part to the whole, it will be, as he explains, from above to below. If from one opposite to another, it will be from right to left. If from the cause to the effect, it will be backwards and forwards. If it be about accidents that surround a thing near at hand or far remote, the movement will be circular. The discoursing of reason from sensible to intelligible objects, if it be according to the order of natural reason, belongs to the straight movement. But if it be according to the divine enlightenment, it will belong to the oblique movement as explained above in the second reply. That alone which he describes as immobility belongs to the circular movement. Wherefore it is evident that Dionysius describes the movement of contemplation with much greater fullness and depth. Seventh Article Whether There Is Delight in Contemplation Objection 1. It would seem that there is no delight in contemplation. For delight belongs to the appetitive power, whereas contemplation resides chiefly in the intellect. Therefore, it would seem that there is no delight in contemplation. Objection 2. Further, all strife and struggle is a hindrance to delight. Now there is strife and struggle in contemplation. For Gregory says in his homily 14 on Ezekiel that when the soul strives to contemplate God, it is in a state of struggle. At one time it almost overcomes, because by understanding and feeling it tastes something of the incomprehensible light and at another time it almost succumbs, because even while tasting, it fails. Therefore, there is no delight in contemplation. Objection 3. Further, delight is the result of a perfect operation, as stated in Ethics 10.4. Now the contemplation of wayfarers is imperfect, according to 1 Corinthians 13.12. We see now through a glass in a dark manner. Therefore, seemingly there is no delight in the contemplative life. Objection 4. Further, a lesion of the body is an obstacle to delight. Now contemplation causes a lesion of the body. Wherefore, it is stated in Genesis 32, that after Jacob had said, I have seen God face to face, he halted on his foot, because he touched the sinew of his thigh, and it shrank. Genesis 32, 30-32 Therefore, seemingly there is no delight in contemplation. On the contrary, it is written of the contemplation of wisdom, Wisdom 8.16 Her conversation hath no bitterness, nor her company any tediousness, but joy and gladness. And Gregory says in his homily 14 on Ezekiel that the contemplative life is sweetness exceedingly lovable. I answer that there may be delight in any particular contemplation in two ways. First, by reason of the operation itself, confers Pars Prima Secundae, question 3, article 5. Because each individual delights in the operation which befits him according to his own nature or habit. Now contemplation of the truth befits a man according to his nature as a rational animal the result being that all men naturally desire to know, so that consequently they delight in the knowledge of truth. And more delightful still does this become to one who has the habit of wisdom and knowledge, 
the result of which is that he contemplates without difficulty. Secondly, contemplation may be delightful on the part of its object, in so far as one contemplates that which one loves, even as bodily vision gives pleasure, not only because to see is pleasurable in itself, but because one sees a person whom one loves. Since then, the contemplative life consists chiefly in the contemplation of God, of which charity is the motive, as stated above, Articles 1 and 2, it follows that there is delight in the contemplative life, not only by reason of the contemplation itself, but also by reason of the divine love. In both respects, the delight thereof surpasses all human delight, both because spiritual delight is greater than carnal pleasure, as stated above, far as prima secunde, question 31, article 5, when we retreating of the passions, and because the love whereby God is loved out of charity surpasses all love. Hence it is written in Psalm 33, 9, O taste and see that the Lord is sweet. Reply to Objection 1. Although the contemplative life consists chiefly in an act of the intellect, it has its beginning in the appetite, since it is through charity that one is urged to the contemplation of God. And since the end corresponds to the beginning, it follows that the term also, and the end of the contemplative life, has its being in the appetite, since one delights in seeing the object loved, and the very delight in the object seen arouses a yet greater love. Wherefore Gregory says, in his homily 14 on Ezekiel, that when we see one whom we love, we are so aflame as to love him more. And this is the ultimate perfection of the contemplative life, namely, that the divine truth be not only seen, but also loved. Reply to Objection 2. Strife or struggle arising from the opposition of an external thing hinders delight in that thing. For a man delights not in a thing against which he strives, but in that for which he strives. When he has obtained it, other things being equal, he delights yet more. Wherefore Augustine says, in Confessions 8.3, that the more peril there was in the battle, the greater the joy in the triumph. But there is no strife or struggle in contemplation on the part of the truth which we contemplate, though there is on the part of our defective understanding and our corruptible body, which drags us down to lower things, according to Wisdom 9.15. The corruptible body is a load upon the soul, and the earthly habitation presseth down the mind that museth upon many things. Hence it is that when man attains to the contemplation of truth, he loves it yet more, while he hates the more his own deficiency and the weight of his corruptible body, so as to say with the Apostle in Romans 7.24, Unhappy man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Wherefore Gregory says, in homily 14 on Ezekiel, When God is once known by desire and understanding, he withers all carnal pleasure in us. Reply to Objection 3 The contemplation of God in this life is imperfect in comparison with the contemplation in heaven, and in like manner, the delight of the wayfarer's contemplation is imperfect as compared with the delight of contemplation in heaven, of which it is written in Psalm 35, 9, Thou shalt make them drink of the torrent of thy pleasure. Yet, though the contemplation of divine things, which is to be had by wayfarers, is imperfect, it is more delightful than all other contemplation, however perfect, on account of the excellence of that which is contemplated, Hence the philosopher says in On Animals 1.5, 
we may happen to have our own little theories about those sublime beings and godlike substances and though we grasp them but feebly nevertheless so elevating is the knowledge that they give us more delight than any of those things that are round about us and gregory says in the same sense in his homily fourteen on ezekiel the contemplative life is sweetness exceedingly lovable for it carries the soul away above itself it opens heaven and discovers the spiritual world to the eyes of the mind reply to objection four after contemplation jacob halted with one foot because we need to grow weak in the love of the world ere we wax strong in the love of god as gregory says in the same homily fourteen on ezekiel thus when we have known the sweetness of god we have one foot sound while the other halts since every one who halts on one foot leans only on that foot which is sound eighth article whether the contemplative life is continuous objection one it would seem that the contemplative life is not continuous for the contemplative life consists essentially in things pertaining to the intellect now all the intellectual perfections of this life will be made void according to first corinthians thirteen eight whether prophecies shall be made void or tongues shall cease or knowledge shall be destroyed therefore the contemplative life is made void objection to further a man tastes the sweetness of contemplation by snatches and for a short time only wherefore augustine says in confessions ten forty thou admittest me to a most unwanted affection in my inmost soul to a strange sweetness yet through my grievous weight i sink down again again gregory commenting on the words of job four fifteen when a spirit passed before me says the commentary on job five thirty three the mind does not remain long at rest in the sweetness of inward contemplation for it is recalled to itself and beaten back by the very immensity of the light therefore the contemplative life is not continuous objection three further that which is not connatural to man cannot be continuous now the contemplative life according to the philosopher in ethics ten seven is better than the life which is according to man therefore seemingly the contemplative life is not continuous on the contrary our lord said in luke ten forty two mary hath chosen the better part which shall not be taken away from her since as gregory says in the same homily fourteen on ezekiel the contemplative life begins here so that it may be perfected in our heavenly home i answer that a thing may be described as continuous in two ways first in regard to its nature secondly in regard to us it is evident that in regard to itself contemplative life is continuous for two reasons first because it is about incorruptible and unchangeable things secondly because it has no contrary for there is nothing contrary to the pleasure of contemplation as stated in topics one thirteen but even in our regard contemplative life is continuous both because it is competent to us in respect of the incorruptible part of the soul namely the intellect wherefore it can endure after this life and because in the works of the contemplative life we work not with our bodies so that we are the more able to persevere in the works thereof as the philosopher observes in ethics ten seven reply to objection one the manner of contemplation 
is not the same here as in heaven yet the contemplative life is said to remain by reason of charity wherein it has both its beginning and its end gregory speaks in this sense homily fourteen on ezekiel the contemplative life begins here so as to be perfected in our heavenly home because the fire of love which begins to burn here is a flame with yet a greater love when we see him whom we love reply to objection to no action can last long at its highest pitch now the highest point of contemplation is to reach the uniformity of divine contemplation according to dionysius confer on the heavenly hierarchy three and as we have stated above in article six second reply hence although contemplation cannot last long in this respect it can be of long duration as regards the other contemplative acts reply to objection three the philosopher declares the contemplative life to be above man because it befits us so far as there is in us something divine ethics ten seven namely the intellect which is incorruptible and impassable in itself wherefore its act can endure longer end of question one hundred and eighty read by michael shane craig lambert l c